From the Clock Tower at Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 2 as we make our way through the Ransom Trilogy. In this episode, we are talking about Paralandra, chapters 15 through 17, and, spoiler alert, go and read if you haven't, or keep listening and be spoiled. Our next episode will be chapters 1 through 7 of That Hideous Strength. And since we already decided that we're not just going to go right into the next book... We're going to take a break. I'm not sure if we'll fill that break with some special episode. No promises. But we will start that hideous strength um, in two weeks. That sounds good. Okay. So for housekeeping, Alex's voice is back. A little. It's almost there. (laughs) For those of our our book club members who've been following along the last few episodes, you might have heard something in Alex's voice. Hopefully you can stand it. I can't stand it, the raspiness, and it's hard for me to listen to it. But I I, I had this sickness that I felt like went away and then came right back, almost as if like it just stole that feeling of finally feeling well. And then to jump right back into it, it's, it makes it so much worse. I don't know. There's all this meaning and expectation in so much of our life and our experience is just what we expect. Expectation. Man, that if we can get that under control, I think life is so much simpler. I think that's kind of what this book is, is about, right? The idea yeah. of expectation, sleeping on the fixed land. This book was about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's one of <laughs> I think I've said this a couple times. I said this once in the Narnia, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and and also I probably said that this in Out of the Silent Planet. We're going further up and further in. This, this kind of feels like, I mean, this whole book has been very philosophical. It's been, it's been very, intellectually challenging and these last chapters which is why this is the first time we've done an episode where we're only covering three chapters but still it's a lot especially chapters 16 and 17 and um i feel like you can almost find all of lewis's theology and philosophy in the context of of the sphere of Venus in these chapters. Hmm. I agree. The last couple of days I've gotten calls or messages from different members of our book club expressing feelings of, hey, we got a little bit lost in this book or at least around some of that philosophy and uh, intellectual arguments that C.S. Lewis is bringing forth. Yeah. And so... They said, we're excited to hear you guys break it down for us. Oh, so it's... So (laughs) (laughs) that just (laughs) upped the pressure a little bit of what we're trying to do here. There's a a line that um, I think Paralandra says to Ransom about like not burying the weight of the whole planet on your shoulders. Love that line. Your your head is already there or something. Yeah. And and it's like... (laughs) Remember your nothingness. Yeah. Just remember, don't worry. Melelda gives you no merit. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just a, it's just a big responsibility for us to feel like it's up to us to help you understand this very difficult book. And I'm sorry, I'm not, we're not going to do. We're not going to do. We're not going to do that. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll have some in, insights. Our perspective is just that; it's a different perspective. So I, yeah, no promises as far as our ability to like help your brain upgrade to the level of Lewis when our brains aren't there yet. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, do you want to hit the summary for him? Yeah. <laughs> Last summary started with ransom awakes. <laughs> I, I feel like our we've got an archaleptic on our hands. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of sleeping in this, these chapters. Ransom awakes and continues his subterranean journey until he slides out of the mountain in a swift river to a pool where he convalesces for several weeks until all but his heel has healed from his battle with the unman. He continues his upward journey on the outside of the mountain until he comes to a beautiful flower-covered valley. There, both the Oyarsa of Malacandra and Paralandra are waiting for him. The king and the lady arrive in the valley and are bequeathed by Paralandra the title of Oyarsa. While in conversation with the Yoyarasu, Ransom is caught up in a vision of the eternal plan of Melildo, only to awaken a Venusian year later. He then returns to Earth in the same manner that he came to Venus. Bravo for his heel has healed. <laughs> yeah, I know. reading that kind of like, it was a little confusing for me just reading it, even though I wrote it. But oh well. Also, you mentioned how much sleep is coming up in these chapters or how much he is sleeping. Yeah. And as a dad of four little kids who doesn't get enough sleep Ooh, at the moment, I was matter. like, I'll take 12 hours <laughs> in a cave with some kind of fruit that heals everything. <laughs> and then he's like, and then he went back to sleep for another 12 hours. Like, yes, please. <laughs> there, it, it's that journey and the battle. It's funny. Even after he, he destroys the unman, I think he was already dead. So I don't want to say kill. He smashes his face and, and throws him into a lava river. <laughs> I feel like then he still doesn't know if he's going to live. You know, it's just such a long journey. Lewis really likes these journeys. I think he likes the tedium of obedience and that when it really, when you're doing what you got to do, it's not going to be feel fun the whole time. Smell of hot so horse, smell of hot self, you know, just the journey through the desert, up the mountain, you know. It's, it's a thick rind you got to chew it, through. That's right. And you don't know how many years thick it is. That's Yeah, exactly. I like that terminology. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, you have a theme that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, this the intellectual breadth of these chapters seems too broad for singular themes. Mm. And so I think if you look at it from an intellectual perspective, the idea of theodicy, which is the way that an imperfect world can be created and guided by a perfect God. And, and the logic and justice of that and understanding the, the, philosoph the philosophy of theology. And Lewis is so good as a logician that we really go through the process of understanding the history of our own fall and the redemption. And then the supposition of Paralandra going, going through a similar but not exactly the same type trial mm. 
and how because the fall already happened and because of the embodiment of Mel Eldil and, and even the presence of ransom, which could not have been there at the, at the temptation of our lady and King that it's a little different this time. There are more weapons. I don't know, weapon, maybe weapon, uh, hmm. weapons at Mel Eldil's disposal. And because of that, things are go a different way and to be able to suppose all of this without undercutting or distracting and maybe it does feel I know, I know the first time I read through this book I felt like it was chipping away at even some of my theological positions perspectives even from my own personal uh Christian tradition mm -hmm. about what it means about the character of Eve just in comparison or even agency and, and certain difficult concepts as far as, you know, all is plan and determinism and, and that sort of thing. And with every subsequent reading of this book, I become, I feel more at peace because I think I'm growing up. I'm getting a little older and my mind's becoming broader enough to be able to really understand these concepts and take some of the fallen characteristics out of my own soul or ears when I'm listening to it. In the same way we were talking about, like with the Sorns talking about the Harasa and, and Ransom being defensive because he doesn't know what it's like to hear an observation without it being so full of, of condemning judgment. It's so value laden. And I think we have to contend, I, I guess, with the logic and the meaning of commandment and obedience in a way that might challenge our theological perspective. But I can, from my perspective, there's nothing to fear here. And we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's the, th the theme is that challenge that, um, the theodicy, the philosophical challenge of what does it mean for our religious tradition to be a true mythology and what that what that can teach us about our experience and our responsibility to God. Hmm. If that's not a heavy enough theme for you. I already want a break and then we'll come back to the chapters. <laughs> you, did you, did you have any? Uh, yeah. I, I didn't have a specific theme that I identified here other than just this chapter, especially chapter 17 just felt all encompassing. It felt comprehensive. It's felt it was everything. And anything outside of everything was just into the bent nothingness. And so um, just the vastness of the topic that we're trying to tackle here yeah. is just the general feeling I had as we went through these. Yeah. Vastness. Yeah. I think that's a good word. So, so huge. Not huge as in numbers, but huge as in complexity that our brains can't really contain it. Huh. Yeah, so take a break. Let's do it. Okay. So welcome back. Uh, excited to jump into chapter 15. Um, question for you, Alex. Yeah. First, what, is there anything... You mentioned how each time you reread these books, you... It helps you maybe break down old ideas and notions that you had and re-examine them and kind of question them to help find more truth, more light, 
hopefully. But are there areas where you would say that you don't align with something C.S. Lewis, his philosophy and your philosophy? Any yes, would... I still think that I'm not exactly in line with him as far as the conclusions of our earthly fall. Not, not that I think that uh, he's wrong. He is really set on making the mythology work out cleanly. And when it comes to agency and history, things don't really work out that clean. So his logic from a, pers a certain perspective, um, a supposition, it makes sense to work out cleanly. In this book, everything does kind of work out clean. You can think of, I brought this up before, but in, in the Silmarillion, uh, Tolkien's version of the fall has Melkor giving a discordant note to the music that Eru is creating or by which Eru is creating. And then he takes, uh, you know, Eru takes that discordant note and weaves it into what's called a musical resolution. Hmm. You can think of a minor chord being resolved by a major chord and kind of even more triumphant by that resolution. And it's very clean. And um, I don't, it's, it's difficult for me to say that I really disagree with Lewis because I see him as somebody who understands all of this way better than it's, it's weird for a student to say that the, the teacher is wrong and doesn't really understand the way that I understand it. You know, it's hard to, <laughs> for me to say that, but I belong to a certain Christian tradition that accepts some revealed truths that Lewis either did not believe in or did not have access to, right? Every Christian tradition has their own little, um, unique take on things and I'm not an Anglican. And so my take on certain doctrines is a little different than his. Now, seeing him as, him as an Anglican, I, I marvel at his ability to understand difficult concepts and just be so logical about them. And it, and it increases my faith in my own Christian tra tradition. And I think he would be glad about that. There's a there's a part in mere Christianity about there, what sect or denomination you belong to in Christianity matters, but he can't tell you which one's the right one because he doesn't know, but it matters that you choose and that you stick to it. Understanding that if you honestly are seeking the truth and trying to find the sect or denomination that is most true as far as you understand the character of God, God's going to see that as what was really demanded of you. So I'm trying to do that. And it's different than what Lewis comes to. Even Tolkien was upset with Lewis for not becoming a Catholic. And Lewis, I'm not sure why he stayed an Anglican. I doubt that he thought that everything about Anglicanism, in fact, I know that that's, that he doesn't align with a lot of the Anglican attitude toward, toward theology. Interesting. So for him, you know, there's that part in Out of the Silent Planet where, where Malachandra, the Oyaris of Malachandra asks, Ransom, what he'll do? Whether he'll stay in Malachandra or will, whether he'll go back. And he says, I'm going to go back. You said that love of kindred is not the greatest thing good, but it is a good. And you can kind of see that kind of, um, I don't want to say reluctance, but admission of 
agnosticism, I think, from Lewis, where it's like, I don't, this is the good that I know. And I don't know of a better good, anything that's more accurate or close. And so I'm going to go with that. And I admire that about him. And I think he would give me the same, I don't think he would tell me that I need to leave my, my personal denomination and become an Anglican. I don't think he would say that at all. No, I think he illustrates it beautifully with that scene with Emmeth that we went through. With yes. Narnia, that like exactly what you're talking about. Right. That <laughs> what mattered most is how we are in service of Christ. And as long as it's true and it's all of our hearts as much as we possibly can give, it, the rest will may, be made up. <laughs> yeah. The, the gap, which we all have that And Emmeth was even worshiping a different God. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm worshiping a different God. I, right. You know, we're all worship. Everybody worships their own understanding of God. And so in a re very real way, we're all worshiping different gods. But that doesn't change who God really is. He's not dependent on our perception of him. But I'm, I, whatever I think of God, I'm wrong. I just want to be as close to right as possible. And if there's that honesty, that honesty is what really matters. So I'm trying to be honest about it. And I, and Lewis was too. Cool. Love it. So there are a couple things that, little parts that I love that I'll go through a couple of these and then I'd love to get your thoughts. So first, um, I love that it talked about that he was nursed back to life. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, he's literally coming from the bowels of the earth. I mean, resurrection went into the ground comes out of the ground and then it's like in this embryo womb state and then brought back to life through water even through water man <laughs> and and like i said i want to be right in that cave with him for 12, 12 to 24 hours uh, or longer and then the the bruised heel which is such an obvious reference to the savior and um that he crushed the head of this demon. Uh, but he did have the power to bruise his heel, and that follows all the way through to the end of the book. And even when... Even on to the next one. Even when his heel is washed by... Tor. Tor. Um, still, uh, it's something that follows him home. Yeah, and the washing of the feet. The washing it of the feet. is really special, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and I said, uh, he's born again of water, also of fire. Oh, yeah. And the fire is what <laughs> cleanses him of all of that fear in that previous possession. This is something that I think came up earlier when we were in the themes and housekeeping, but wishing and fearing were modes of consciousness for which he seemed to have lost the faculty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, that fear. It's funny when he's talking about the fear of even the unman following him and or something following him. And just the whole experience going through the cave and every moment is unknown and, and the unknown means fear. And then once the unman's destroyed, he see, he looks at that bug, <laughs> the big, the big centipede like, or I guess three compartment body beetle sort of thing. And it's like, he couldn't understand why you would ever be afraid of something like that when he had a, a personal phobia of beetles. And so like that understanding that so much of our lives is the result of the fall and of the control of the dark Eldil and his minions on our earth that if we, we really can find refuge, we can find safety in, in Christ from something as simple as just fear of the dark. Yeah. Because that sort of fear really is almost this, it's not a possession, but it's, it's a, 
It's an enchantment. I, it stood out to me. I feel I feel like I can operate in two different spaces, neither one of them which is where I should be operating. And one is in the busy mode of I'm working on problems and whether it's at work, at home or whatever, and I'm getting things done. But uh, in the words of Tenadrill near the end, they, the animals had left and she said they've gone about their small affairs. Um, and she talks about, you know, taking care of their kids and feeding them and, and just going about life. And I was like, that's my, most of my existence is what she just called small affairs, which after everything they've been through, small affairs is a great way to describe how we spent. that's one area I spend a lot of time. And then when I have those quieter moments and I just experienced this this last week, all of a sudden I started ruminating on my worries and fears of the future and what might go wrong or what wouldn't work out the way I hoped. And I spent a day with my kids and with my family kind of grumpy and upset and ruining a day that I could have just really enjoyed that family time because I had fears and I was letting that color the way I was looking forward. And so this, this just, I loved that. And, and, I'm seeking for that peace, and I know some sometimes I can grasp it a little bit, and too often I I'm not in that zone. I guess. Yeah, there's a there's a moment where where Ransom tells the lady. This is in the last section that we were reading, but that because of the fall, and he's alluding to that line in the Bible where by the sweat of your brow, you shall mm-hmm. have your bread. That and that that our days became narrower and not wider because of that. In the distraction, trying to avoid fear through distraction is actually a symptom of the fall and of our own inability to cope with or to have the power to overcome fear. And that's not what the Spirit of God or the Holy Ghost can do for us. We can actually confront the fear, go through it. We don't avoid the dragons. We, we slay them. You know, think of Apollo Soroctonos, the dragon slayer, you know, and that's sun, the God of the sun. And, and by the power of the sun, we, we can slay the dragons. We don't have, we're not just sneaking around trying to avoid them. And that's kind of the, that is the responsibility and the, what, what Ransom had to do with the unman. He didn't just like, okay, let's get on an island that the unman's not there. You know, he would have found him anyway, but it was the, when it really came down to it, he had to fight he had to fight the dragon. And so I think that's, I'm not sure if Lewis even had that specifically in mind, but definitely that's communicated is what it means to live up to your potential and to become more and more, take on yourself more and more. The stature of Christ is not to avoid fear is not to avoid the things that are the result of the fall, but to confront them, call on divine assistance and go through it and not around it. Was there anything else you wanted to make sure we touched on as far as leading up to the meeting the Oyarsa? Chapter 15. There's the singing beast. I think it's really interesting. This is one of those things where it's like, as I'm reading, it's still a little difficult because I think there's something about the feminine quality of Paralandra or Venus that's, that's embodied in the singing beast. Even that it's coy or shy, but not afraid. There's like a, a, not a timidness. It's not, it's not a negative characteristic. It's almost like this type of characteristic virginity that you would might almost scoff at or think is, is 
this infantilizing girlishness in the way that we see things because we can't see power through coyness. And that's, I, I struggle when I get that. It's like, yeah, but is that something about femininity that is empowering or, or you know, whatever, give whatever lines of feminism that you, that you're afraid to say wrong, like we gave our little disclaimer last episode. You know, it's it's difficult to talk about this, especially two dudes talking about it. But I, I think he's he's willing, Lewis is willing to talk about all aspects of femin- femininity and look at it in a way that gives it beauty or power. And you can see kind of even that coyness uh, of, of femininity and personified in this singing beast. Just the beauty and it's shine, you know, it's and anyway, maybe I'm looking too much into it, but there's there's so much Venusian sim, symbolism in this journey up to the valley, the way that the the even the mountains looking like breasts, you know, like there's that and it's I, I blush a little bit when I even say those words because it's hard for us to talk about those things without it being corrupted by our our Thulcandrian mindset, <laughs> right? And so I, I just, it, I'm getting better at being in this spirit of Venus without getting so, I don't know, <laughs> so uncomfortable with the taboo. Yeah. I thought it was cool that it, he showed life. There was life at every layer of the planet from the depths yeah. to when he sits down and he's under the trees and he sees there's actually this little little mice running around. Or yeah, something. that look like proto-hippos or the, yeah. the little horse. Yeah, but just like there's life in on the skin of the earth under, on, under the crust and above. Teeming with life. Teeming with life, yeah. Yeah, yeah very, very Venusian. Venusian. Right, <laughs> very Paralandrian. Um, yeah, I, I think my my mom actually has a really... I think healthy perspective of femininity and she loves stuff like this. She loves the whole power in motherhood. So there's one part I want to make sure we get to is when he finally gets to before he's entering, what would you call it? The Valley between the mountains at the very top. Yeah. I was thinking about what term should I use when I was writing the summary? What, what is that geological term? A caldera? Something like that, where it's like the this depression and in, in the top of the is there because they're at the top of these this mountain, but then also in a valley. My ability to contribute right now is just going to be that sounds nice. <laughs> we could use caldera, <laughs> caldera. Um, but his feelings as he's about to enter this place were the holiest and the most unholy. Yes, and that he knew Meleldil was commanding him to go, but at the same time, he felt deeply that he should not go. Yeah. Yeah, remember in Narnia when they couldn't imagine that 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 the garden could be for them? Yeah. As they went into that walled garden that was the higher real Narnia version of what Diggory had to go to to get that golden apple. The Garden of the Hesperides is what it's called, is what he's drawing from. Um, And you can see a very Venus-like quality there, Aphrodite. Think of the nuptial embrace, sexual intercourse, which is something that's so corruptible. And even talking about it seems so icky. 
but for people in a loving marriage becomes can be the most holy demonstration of unity and and it's that one of those things that it's like at the top of this precipice of of meaning that if you're not careful it can fall off into corruption and and um and lewdness and um perversion and you really get that feeling a lot through this book, but especially there. And he says it right out that it's felt like the most unholy thing he couldn't do. He couldn't not go in and he couldn't go in feeling comfortable. I was, it made me think about that. We are commanded to go before the throne of God while also having a perfect knowledge uh, with our, humility of recognizing that we have no right to be there yeah and that feeling i can relate with (laughs) you're doing such a fantastic job talking about these venusian aspects and the themes here way better than i would do so (laughs) bless you (laughs) but uh, but yeah that that was something i i really relate to is you know every every week to go take the sacrament like i'm called to go and and be there and participate in that ordinance that on one hand, I just am filled with gratitude that I get the chance to participate. And on the other feeling like I don't quite deserve to be here, but I'm sure lucky that he commanded me to. So I'm just going to do what he said. Yeah. Is it Torah that says the best fruits are plucked by other hands? Yeah. Yeah. There's really that strong feeling. And, And I love that my mind gets there and that I feel I feel like emotionally tender when I'm reading these last chapters because I know exactly, not, not from the perspective of being on the mountain that's called like Taiharendrimar, I think is what it's called. <laughs> and like the, I haven't been there, but just like you're saying, like I've been conscious of my guilt in the moment of feeling forgiven. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it puts me on the, it puts me on the edge emotionally. And so it, it's funny. There's this, uh, this was my experience. Cause I, I listened to these chapters cause they're, they, I, I read through them. I listened to them several times cause it's just three chapters. And there's this experience that Lewis shares in his, his autobiography, surprised by joy, where he, what he recognizes is his first experience with beauty. And then he compares, uh, and then he says that experience of beauty is what he uses to kind of show what this um, ephemeral quality of joy. And his brother had a little biscuit tin and he had created like this little fairy garden or just a little garden in it. And he, and he showed it to Lewis and it was just so beautiful to him. And then as he was looking, it kind of lost its beauty. And that a search for joy is kind of like regaining that first perception of it. And I can, you can go through these chapters and if you're really in the enjoyment state rather than the highlighter and pen in hand, trying to make sure you don't miss the important parts so that you can talk to the people who are depending on you to understand these chapters, <laughs> hypothetically. So doing what we did. <laughs> go on. <laughs> but the first time, like to go through really enjoying it and it, it's like he has this ability to get you into the mind of that beauty in the biscuit tin where you're you're experiencing it and it's a spiritual experience it's a holy experience to get your your mind in the state of understanding the grandeur of of god and his plan and how you fit in it and how you can play a role like ransom that is so much responsibility and yet it doesn't depend on you but you still have that 
choice and don't worry none of the merit will be given to you because you're basically just this corner and oh, how can a corner be such a small world like ours and oh with us a corner is not a size and so you can participate in those directional changes of meaning and yet be as infallible you can be forgiven and made holy even though you yourself are totally filled with the guilt that you know your choices have led you to hmm. and i felt i would i you know just this time through the book even though i've read it several times i got there it was hard to, i couldn't get back there when i was going through in my re, in my rereads to make sure that I had all the, I knew how to say Thai Harendrimar when you asked, or actually I, you didn't even ask. I just, you know, offered that up unsolicited, but like, yeah, that enjoyment and contemplation. Wow. I love, I love that. I had that experience with these chapters. Yeah. It was great. Well, should we take a break and come back? Yeah. Okay. All right, welcome back. I'm I'm babbling enough that I can already tell my voice. I'm my the endurance of my newly recovered voice is not as high as it used to be, so I'm already getting raspy again. Let that be a lesson to me. <laughs> so they're in the valley, and, and the, he sees his coffin slash spaceship, the brother of that one, right? Because. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what he calls it, I think. Because the other one dissolved in the ocean of Paralandra. So, it was cool that it said if if he had said it was his burial that he would have felt no different. He's experienced life so richly. Remember the richness of Venus, like going from, home to dark Vulcandra. Vulcan, you might as well be going <laughs> dying. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that uh, that's where we live, guys. <laughs> that's right. Well, I felt that. I mean, like you were saying, the tedium of the day to day. And yet we can be brought out of that. We can experience the richness. It's great that we have in our, in our perceptual reasoning, it's like there's a ceiling on the enjoyment that we can have. And yet we break through that ceiling all the time. I hope that I use that evidence more frequently in my own hope, my own faith. So he sees the, the coffin. It feels like he's going to die from Paralandra. And when he goes back, and he sees things that he hasn't seen in, in, in Paralandria yet. The Oyerasu, Eladilla, right? He sees the telltale fluctuations of light that he got to know on Malacandra. And then he has this interaction with them. And they're, they have their funny way of interacting with him as if, you know, understanding fallen creatures is so foreign to them, right? And also it, they kind of talk as if he isn't in the room. The way they talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> because they have nothing to hide. Yeah. <laughs> they have nothing to hide from. And uh, and then they decide, you know, they want to appear for the king and queen. When they come into the valley, they want to appear in a form that gives them honor, not just these shadowy, ghosty figures. And there's a couple ways that they present themselves. Did that make any sense to you? The pillars with many eyes and the wings and the... And then the concentric circles and the. Well, the, f the, w the first one was terrifying to him. Mm -hmm. And that one was the wings and the eyes and all that stuff. But I, w I wouldn't say I pulled deep meaning from it other than this, this is a multifaceted creature. And we finally landed on a form that was 
at the speed and at the place where we could actually see it because he uses like the rock analogy. Yeah. But what the appearances, you know from that? right? Yeah. Well, it has biblical allusion in my mind. There's a lot of um, Book of Revelation type imagery and the, the the symbolism of how would you express something that's un that's incomprehensible to our minds about multidimensional space and eyes and and you can see that there's this kind of motif throughout our history and mythologies of gods being multi eyes or arms or wings or and you can almost say show that like or lewis is almost showing that like those are kind of inspired by truth. It's just their appearances. And Ransom is like, well, what have I experienced? Am I experiencing an appearance now when you're showing in your human type form? And which I don't remember which one says it, but you've never seen anything but an appearance. Yeah. When he uses the rock analogy and then he, he says, okay, well, if you and the rock are going the same speed and you're at the right distance you see what you perceive to be, what you're saying you perceive to be a rock. But if I throw it at you and Ransom says, you know, shatter the see light, splintered you know, light, obviously you're getting hit in, the fe- hit in the face by a rock. But when Ransom tries to interpret distance, he says, that's not the distance I'm talking yeah. about. Did that, like what distance was he talking about? Or do we, do we know, or that was just another, I felt like as the representation of the every man here, <laughs> um, that symbolism only, it impresses on my mind my inability to grasp the fourth dimension. That's what I feel. And, and if I that's think all C.S. Lewis is trying to do, he accomplished it really well. Right. Because I just feel like, whoa, that's, it's too much. It's too big. Like, I don't even know how to grasp it. I just know I want to. Yeah, that's have, have confidence that he's actually got a really keen grasp of even mathematical fourth dimensional meaning. But in his, his in his portrayal of it to us i think that ability that just confusion that's part of what he's trying to communicate now the distance i think what he means is a metaphorical distance right remember when um ramandu's telling eustace that even in your world that's not what a star is only what it's made of so you can actually be you could go close to a star only thinking that it's this burning ball of gas and you're as far as meaning or reality on a deeper level, you're still farther away than somebody who's seen it from the night sky on earth and knows what a star is, what its meaning is. And that's the true operation of it, right? A rock is, when it's hitting you in the face, it doesn't matter if it's like what kind of igneous rock it is. Or if you could give like this gel, except for probably the hardness of it (laughs) on the hardness scale. But its true operation is, ow, that hurt. And am I bleeding? Like that's, that's what it means. And that's the meaning of that experience. And to see that the world is not just physical positions, it's interactions. It's the meaning and interpretation that requires a mind. Because rocks can exist without you but they don't mean anything without a mind. And so a rock being thrown at your face gives a different meaning and therefore its appearance is different. And is that appearance less true than just seeing and being able to point and say, that's a, you know, whatever rock, names of rocks are. <laughs> you rock experts <laughs> out there are going to yeah. be disappointed <laughs> us right now. 
We've limit we've reached the limits of Alex's <laughs> research before this podcast. Don't, don't give me just, just kidding. Don't do <laughs> don't tempt me. I was gonna say nice, but with a G, but that one anyway, it's a metamorphic type. Yeah, you, um, granite. Anyway. <laughs> you talked about this earlier, but the the comfort that comes from be comforted, it is no doing of yours. Though you could have prevented a thing so great, deep heaven would have seen its greatness. Mm-hmm. Have no fear. No merit. He won't give merit There's to no, you. He won't give merit to you, lest your shoulders bear the world. Look, it's already buried in your head. You're, look down. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's what comes into Ransom's mind when he realizes he has to fight the unman is the difference between somebody like Jesus and feeling blasphemous, thinking that he has a responsibility similar to the redemption that Jesus made in overcoming the fall. And he says, what's the difference between a man burning his finger, putting out a match, or the firefighter who loses his life, extinguishing a conflagration? What Jesus did was the greater thing. And they, and I think Lewis is careful to use that comparative throughout the book. What Ransom's doing is not equal to the redemption, is not equal to the atonement of Christ. But Christ is so powerful, he can even work through small means to bring great things to pass. And so Ransom, as a tool as a mere grain of sand that a rock that changes the course of a river. Did it require him to burn his finger? Yeah. He gets wounded like crazy into this horrible, horrible trial, but it's only a singe on the finger compared to what Christ did in Gethsemane and on the cross. And so that realizing that we can just by our choice participate in something that is inaccessible to us of our own merit and him just realizing that he's played that role and he gets this glo- he gets kind of this glory from Tor and Tenadrell and he he will always be seen as a father to them even though he calls a savior them, they yeah, call him a savior yeah, of the world right and it's and it's in a way it's true but nothing to boast of because he knows and the truth is it was presented to him to participate in a way that it's presented to all of us That's to participate. What I was say it's the same. It's that same invitation that we're all given. And that's the, that's the juxtaposition. You have ransom on one hand saying it can't all come down to me. Like my, my choices, my agency can't matter that much that this whole planet hinges on me confronting this unmanned, but realizing it did and that his agency did matter. But the greatest thing had already been done. Yeah. It's <laughs> both of those. Right. And it's difficult <laughs> it's because both. we don't give a suppos- we don't get a supposition through this. What would if we re-entered into Earth with the fall and Adam and Eve, and let's suppose they didn't fall. We don't get that because we're only told our, our story. story. Yeah. And the might haves and would could would, uh, would have beens are not real, because choice matters and truth exists. 
So we do get to have this supposition. But the truth is, and we know this because of the, the words of Christ to us, is that we get to become joint heirs. We get to participate in the redemption, not, not of our own merit, but we get sent for out into all the corners of the earth to help bring people unto Christ. We have that responsibility, right? What, what will, you know, somebody who's, who's from our even seemingly inconsequential testimonies that bring somebody to the knowledge of Christ and to a conversion of their hearts could look at us as a stone in the river of their lives. Do we deserve any merit for that? Of course not, because we're not, we're not the redeemers, right? But we still get to play and we still get to stand up. We still get to make our choices and choices matter. Not that all isn't plan. You know, it seems like no, no, nothing is planned because all is planned. Even on these floating islands, there are some surfaces that look like they're undimensional or see, uh, a smooth surface. But if you go look, they're really fine hairs. And each one of those hairs participates in that overall big picture. All is planned because the plan is more complex than what people who say there is no plan think that it should look like. I mean, we're all babies trying to understand something beyond our comprehension. We have so many people who have come to this conclusion that what humans understand is the pinnacle and the, the end of all possible understanding. Therefore, you know, it's just, it's just silliness to me um, that we would ever come to a conclusion that there isn't anything beyond our ability to understand it. And this is where we get kind of a glimpse into what does it mean for things to be greater than our understanding. And it comes through the speech of these Oyerasu to ransom. What are some of the things that they said that uh, you thought was interesting? Before we get to their their speech, which I mentioned to Alex, reminded me of Isaiah. And even when you were just talking, it reminded me of how beautiful are the feet upon Mount Zion of those who, what are the Publish words? Peace, Publish bring, peace. Bring good tidings, right? Yeah. That's everything you were saying. Those were the words hitting my mind or a little bit of Isaiah, which I think means you're in a good vein. Yeah. Um, but I love, I love, and I think we'll talk about this in other C.S. Lewis books when it talks about that the one thing that he could see in their countenance was charity when he thought back oh, after. Yeah. And it was a charity that neither blossomed out of or descended into natural affection. So, and the, and so. that... Well, that, that to me is, that makes perfect sense that so often, even when something starts with, I I think when we can capture enough of the spirit of Christ to actually act charitably, which I think is difficult, um, that often that leads to just a natural affection of actually caring about somebody because you, you let out with charity or... Uh, because someone treated you charitably, you start to develop that natural affection. And, and, but we don't live in this pure vein of charity that just, uh, that is overwhelmingly abundant coming from Mel Eldil, right? Yeah. And that, that's, that's just something so cool. I, like, I, it, that's what I feel like so much, so much of this. 
that's what I feel like so many of these chapters have for me is C.S. Lewis makes it just accessible enough where I'm like, yes, I've tasted that. Like I haven't, I can't say that I'm, that I'm firmly grasping, but I've tasted that and it tastes good and I know it's right. And I want to just, I want to keep reaching for it. So love that. So right before they've, they, Ransom's been hearing this singing since he woke up in the cave. And then finally you see Tor and Tenadryl come walking over the hill or in down into the valley from the mountain. And it talks about the light. It was the first time that he, he realized what light resting on something looked like. And it talks about how the light, it was so bright, but the light didn't emanate from them. It wasn't as if light was shining off their skin, but just was resting on them. And I thought that was just another beautiful way to illustrate that, that nothingness that we're talking about, that it didn't, it wasn't because Tor was special, but he's just emanating the light that he perfectly radiates. Right? Yeah. You get the subordination of the moon type symbolism where the, it doesn't create its own light. It only reflects and it's the lesser light to rule the night. And, um, he, he gives that example of like, you could mistake a wax work for somebody at a glance, but the portrait is much more like the subject yeah. than the wax work ever could be. And that it's beauty and understanding like its purpose part of it being an imitation and knowing without a doubt that it is an imitation is an important part of its beauty. Hmm. Uh, Tor is not pretending to be Meleldil. He's pretending, right? He's not, he's not a counterfeit. He's a preparation. And there's, it seems those things, we use the same word, it seems very similar, but the meaning is where all the difference is. Tor has been made in the image of Melado, and so he becomes this beautiful masterpiece, something that points as a type to Melado, rather than to try to take away the focus from. And that's where Tor's majesty is. And you, could, you, you couldn't look, about, look at anything else, is what Ransom says. There was something powerful too when Tor and Tenadryl are talking and he says, he says something and Tenadryl asks him a question and he turns to her and goes, didn't, didn't you tell me that? Right. right. <laughs> kind of like, and, and he goes, I thought no, these words were coming, words were coming from you. And, and to me, it was a beautiful illustration that, that their greatness is, is oneness. Yeah. And, and. That, that's something that, that I think so often gets misunderstood is, you know, neither is it the man without the woman or the woman without the man, but it is their greatness is in that they were able to come together in this glorious final moment. Yeah. In our subordinate version of justice, we are obsessed with equality. Oh, I love this part. And we're, yeah. we're obsessed with the masculine and the feminine being on even ground. But what that usually turns into is giving all the masculine qualities and characteristics to femininity. And so, you know, a powerful woman is only a woman who is powerful in the way that men are powerful. And so we pretend that they can compete at the same level in sports because that's where real value is. And therefore uh, we have to pretend that they're not physiologically different and can't not, cannot compete at the same level. So we pretend 
that we, we make ourselves stupider than we actually are in order to force equality where it cannot exist. Not because they're, they're, they're unequal in value, but because in the way that we can't see all the colors that are possible, you know, this, even in this book, the idea of colors beyond our visual spectrum or our ability to see it, that qualities can differ so much, so drastically, and then neither is more important. You can see that in the masculine and in the feminine in, a, in the nuclear family unit. Traditionally, or you could say archetypally, you would have a mother taking care of the family and then the father like a spearhead going out into the world and either defending or providing. And one has a value of, of breadth and the other has a value of, of like a vertical value of height or something that you can that their dimensions or the dimensions of their value are totally different. They're on different spectra of value. And so if you say, well, if, if you are going to do your equal part in the home, you need to do all of these things equally to your spouse and your spouse needs to do all these other things equally. And in those, in that weighing and, and comparing, we often betray what we actually think. We have such a hard time seeing complete apples and oranges valuable for being appley and orangey, <laughs> right? It's how much, you know, that there's that, I guess, attributed to Einstein quote, judging a fish by how well it can climb a tree. And we do that all the time when we get into this battle of the sexes. And so we have to say that fish climb trees really well. And that monkeys swim really well, right? We have, we, we have to try to say, to pretend that everybody's equal because we don't know how to see difference of value. We don't have a mind for true diversity. What diversity that term has become is how much can we have this one thing that means diversity? And one thing meaning diversity is the antithesis of diversity. Our brains are too narrow. Our, our, social, our social moralities are too singularly focused because we're so defensive. We can't be creative because we're always on the defense. We're always looking at each other and trying to def defend ourselves by pointing out the guilt in other people. And so we become this judgmental culture that's trying to find out how everybody else is wrong instead of doing good things. And it's infuriating and it's difficult and, it, and it's, and it makes me like, I don't know, being able to engage even in a conversation of gender, like we get in this book is so refreshing. And it almost seems like this is a conversation that I don't know how many years ago wouldn't have even been an issue at all. But for us to talk about gender in this book seems like a, a third rail sort of thing. I thought it was interesting that gender was such an important thing for Lewis to bring. And now we're, we're on Venus and obviously gender between Mars and Venus. I mean, this is, this is dripping with this symbolism, right? Yeah. But like that, that he talks about sex was just a manifestation of whatever biology needed to happen, but gender was deeply eternal. Yes. And that's, that's unpopular. I mean, neither of us are running for public office after we talk about this here. <laughs> well, the idea, of, okay uh, the, the, the idea of gender being more important than sex or, sec or uh, secondary sec sexual characteristics, right? 
what I think is important about that, and you have a lot of confusion in our modern day about people wanting to be labeled and categorized into certain areas of what their preferences are. Like if you like a certain thing, that means you are that certain thing. Anytime you want to categorize yourself by a preference or an obsession or by, you know, certain proclivities, you're trying to look for an excuse to not be responsible for your choices, right? I see the speech in here about gender and the way that it applies to us as a call to duty and responsibility. Who knows, maybe in our in our fourth dimensional states beyond this life and even more and more dimensions beyond that, maybe we do and our souls become all genders. I don't know. But I know this. I have been given a certain medium for my gender expression, and it is the sex of my body. And if I can't practice mastering what masculinity is through the medium that I've been given, how could I ever prove that I'm worthy of taking on more responsibility that doesn't fall, that doesn't fall within the tools that I've been given? The same tools that I've been given talking about secondary sex characteristics seems a little on the, on the nose. I'll say nose. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> no, but it's it's like a it's like an artist before they've ever even taken like a sketching or figure drawing class saying I want to be an impressionist or I want to do abstract art. You can't learn to be Picasso by studying his later works and practicing what it's like to do to draw faces that are deconstructed. That's not how he got there. He got there through the rigors through the difficult process of mastering Realism. You have to master that before you can transcend. And people nowadays want to transcend before they've ever mastered the thing that they've been given. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I can't. I'm the tool, the medium that I've been given is a male body. I now, whether I have these certain preferences or proclivities, I have the duty to, and responsibility to master masculinity. Now, what the world tells me masculinity is and what God tells me masculinity is might be vastly and drastically different. But that's my task. It's tricky to, to talk about this, to kind of tiptoe on eggshells, but I do think it's a valuable conversation, especially in the from the idea of these books, especially since we went, we've been talking about cosmolog cosmological themes, planets, which are really representations of genders. And for, for us to realize that our life isn't about finding where we fit in. Our life is about lifting where we stand. It's about understanding the task that God gives us, just like with ransom, and we'll probably find no way to boast about it, right? We'll think, we'll realize that what's demanded of us is not what we, for the reasons and merits that we would think it would, should be. Sometimes we just have to play the cards that we're dealt. And I think if we, instead of trying to be defensive about where we fit in, what clubs we belong to, what our favorite colors and favorite preferences and whether we like 
certain you know flavors of jam <laughs> doesn't doesn't really matter what matters is can we play the cards that we've begin, been given can we take the responsibility of what is factually true about us and live up to the full stature of that truth and when you when we started going down this direction you'd mentioned justice falling below the line in this world which is a line from tor yeah and he goes on to say mel eldil goes above it and then he says the best fruits plucked by hands that are not our own and it was when ransom was questioning well you know tendril just went through all this stuff and i just went through all this stuff and you were just and off. you have a world for it. And yeah. you get a world for this? And and he and he's like, I understand where you're coming from. I understand how your world thinks about justice. But Meleldo going above, like a lot of what we're grappling with here is because we live here on Fulcandra where justice is below the line. But when you move into Meleldo's version of justice, we're all getting so, so much more. And I, I think that's the... That's the saving grace. To, that's too much on the nose, but like that. I mean, that is the grace that, um, when everything you receive can be received with gratitude. When the the person you are, the tools you've been given, the situation you've been handed, um, can be seen as eventually you can know you're going to get more, and it's going to be given to you from trees you didn't plant and from people who did work that you didn't do. Right. That is the lesson of Paralandra is to accept the wave as it comes to you instead of to try to control it and sleep on the fixed land. There's this interesting thing. You can ruin a child's ability to have fun by making them obsess about equality. Some parents, I think with good intentions, will do a thing that is very detrimental to a child's development which if they have siblings and it's the birthday of a certain of a sibling one of the siblings they give a present to the other as well because they don't want the you know you can see this hyper obsession with equality and sometimes we want to make sure okay we gave this kid this thing we need to give the kid the other kid this thing as well and we need to make it perfectly equal and what what ha starts happening to kids is they start to believe you. If you hyper-focus on equality, they'll think that that's the value of the toys. That You can see this every time in a kid who wants just the toy that the other kid has. They don't really care about playing themselves. They'll get the toy and then they'll see the kid. The, the first kid went on to another toy and so they try to get that toy too. And we communicate this I think unintentionally, but maybe sometimes a little too intentionally all the time when we say, okay, you get this and you get the exact equal thing. And I don't think kids necessarily come pre-programmed wanting equality. And you can, you can treat your kids differently because no kid grows up in the same family. You can't have two oldest kids. I guess you can if you, if they're twins, but like they'll fall in different orders and in different roles in your family. You can actually ruin their ability to appreciate what they have by making them think that the only way it's worth anything is if they have exactly what the other kid has. You have to be careful about that. And we do that so much. And now you look around the world and you wonder why we're all so trying to judge each other and make sure everybody has the same beliefs as us when we've all been raised with this hyper-focus, this over-emphasis on 
what equality means because we can't just be satisfied with the cards that we've been given. You had asked me some of my favorite parts from the speech of the Oye. Oyerasu, that's Oyerasu. Just the plural. Oyerasu. Yeah. And um, one of the big focuses was around just God existing in everything and existing completely in the smallest thing, but also encompassing everything. I, th- I thought that was beautiful. Um, I also loved all things appear to have no plan because there are so many plans. Um, and then the other favorite was that all, all adds nothing to him. Your love is not born of my need or your deserving. Um, so anyways, th- th- those were all just powerful lines that stood out to me. I think um, I, was, I was trying to think about when we get caught up in worrying about us, us not seeing a plan be, because there's so many plans and where, where that kind of intersects with me along my fixed three-dimensional timeline. <laughs> but what are your thoughts? There's a lot of imagery in, in many C.S. Lewis books about patterns coming to the edge of our ability to see them. You can imagine like a tile pattern that that goes through multiple tiles. But what if you're only able to look at one tile? And you see the line go to the boundary, the edge of that tile, and then it just, where does it go? And then some, and then there's another line, maybe a few inches to the side of it, that it seems like it came from nowhere. And you're like, it's just random. It doesn't mean any, these lines are going off. And But then if you could see the broader pattern, you would see that that line continues and actually is the source of that other line. And to us, we don't see that connection, but if you could see the bigger picture. So whenever we say that there is no plan, it's always from a narrow perspective that we're saying there is no plan. And what he's saying is the perspective is greater. The understanding is more is beyond what our capability of understanding is. We see the fall of Adam and Eve, and we think Eve just is bad. And then we see the redemption of Christ, and we think, oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed with how all of this works together. And did it have to work that way? Well, I don't know. That's a that's question almost might be meaningless, but I do know this. God's never wanting me to disobey him. And so if I take the lesson from Eve, oh, he, he, he wanted me, he wanted Eve to disobey. Maybe he wants me to disobey. No, that can't be true. Oh, but wait, Eve had agency. And so her being able to act contrary to God was an important part of the meaning of who she was. Not that she's defined by her disobedience. Unfortunately, because of our narrow and judgmental Fulcandrian minds, we do that. We project on Eve just this, in the same way that we do with Thomas, the apostle, we say, oh, he's just a doubter. Instead of seeing him as a very important empirical skeptic and the role that that can play. And maybe he should have had more faith, like Christ said. I'm not saying that Christ was wrong. Obviously, he was right there. But so did Peter. Peter needed more faith. We all need more faith. Eve is not defined by her disobedience because the plan is greater. The fire may catch the whole house, but a firefighter will lose his life in putting it out. Not only putting it out, but then it will be greater than, and and, and even the very process by which 
our mansions are made. And so you have this character in Eve and this, this paradox because the plan and our inability to understand the plan, this paradox of disobedience, but then she's, the, she's our lady, right? She's the queen of our world. She's the mother of all that is living and she deserves our respect. And when you even look at it through this, this supposition, the only difference between Tenadrill and Eve was ransom. After a while, even Ransom thought Tenadrill would eventually fall if that temptation was allowed to go on and on and on. Yeah. Eve deserves no lesser honor, reverence, and veneration than Tenadrill does. And Tenadrill's not real. Eve is. She deserves all of our respect. She's our lady. Right? After her pattern and in in response to that, you know, the term Our Lady is usually reserved for Mary because of the way that we think of holiness. And Mary came in as this innocent virgin and almost as an answer to Eve. But I think if we're reading this book right, we come out of it thinking as Ransom, who realized what had just happened and that he actually was participating in a situation that was similar to the fall of our own parents, that he fell to his knees and he was overwhelmed. We would be overwhelmed in the presence of our mother. And I think that that's where I get. That's, that's how I feel because all is planned. And all is planned doesn't mean that I don't have agency and I can't make choices. Eve is the perfect demonstration of that. She's the demonstration of that paradox that God has everything under control and yet I can make my own choices. Were there any other parts of the speech that you want to make sure we touch on? I just think that the imagery, even the, the web and the, the lines and intersecting with the, their corpuscles, I think is what he calls them. Mm -hmm. These nodes of meaning and importance. And sometimes they're just simple people or events or even a wave of the sea at one point, he thought. Um, and realizing that they all come together and he, and he, he's talking about generalities and even cultural, you know, what I, the term that I thought of, cause I can't think of it as like the zeitgeist even of like our time and the ideologies of our time being these kind of seemingly important things but really as they all depend on each other and are intertwined kind of like a web and each is affected by the other shows that we can have all of this seeming chaos and randomness, but with a broader perspective, it brings it back into understanding a more objective morality and truth where everything can belong and everything can have a trajectory of eternity and yet also have agency and the ability to make a choice at any moment to obey or not obey. And it's hard to see that when you get real too contemplative about it and you're going through the chapters with a pen and a, and a highlighter, but in the enjoyment of it, it really, it's, that's where I started to feel that. And it's, I love being in that place where I can feel just the truths of what I believe the gospel is that God sent his son to die for us. And because of him, we can, we will live again and have the ability through our choices, not of our own merit, but of the merit 
of Christ, who is mighty to save, we can be exalted in return to see the face of our God and that that is the greatest joy possible. What that even means, we don't know. But if we humble ourselves enough to see that the pattern is greater than the little tile that we're looking at, I have that hope. And this book helps direct me to the real scriptures that give that hope and our evidence for that reality. What you said just reminded me of that every choice, every moment in the same way that it's expansive and that this, this design actually there's, there's too many plans for us to comprehend. It's because of that fact that makes every moment and every smallest choice the most important one. And it's, and, and, God is in that moment and those small decisions, those small concessions or those small uh, ways where we make the right choice, <laughs> uh, just uh, like he's in the big ones. It's a good thing to remember. Mm -hmm. The fruit you're eating is the best. Hmm. Yeah. Well, should we listen to our clip? Yeah. It was hard to find a specific audio clip but we're just going to go from the very end because I think in a very simple way, this is kind of the whole theme. And this is in chapter 17 toward the end. What is this that we feel, Tor? said Tenedril. I don't know, said the king. One day I will give it a name. This is not a day for making names. It is like a fruit with a very thick shell, said Tenedril. The joy of our meeting when we meet again in the great dance is the sweet of it. But the rind is thick, more years thick than I can count. You see now, said Tor, what that evil one would have done to us. If we had listened to him, we should now be trying to get at that sweet without biting through the shell. And so it would not be that sweet at all, said Tinidril. So the what is this that she's feeling is, I think, the pain of parting, of ransom leaving, and them not knowing, you know, wanting to delay. And... um Anyway, they have kind of this microcosmic moment of the whole meaning of the book, which is wanting to bypass the difficult process of a real human experience, want to defeat the unman without having to actually fight him, wanting to be done with it without having to climb up the, in the subterranean underworld, right? Wanting all the wanting to take a fruit and then eat it again, find those those ones with the red centers and have it again and more. If God is good and all-powerful, how come he doesn't just strip the rinds off and give us all the sweet? That's right. And like um, Tinadrill rightly observes, it wouldn't be that sweet anymore. We have to know the bitter. That's right. Whew. Moving pianos and stuff. <laughs> We have to move pianos if we want to <laughs> play them. <laughs> well, thank you for being in our book club. Um, this was quite the adventure we just wrapped up. And uh, we hope, as always, you'll continue with us. So next episode, sounds like we'll do something exciting. So hold your breath. Maybe it'll take a week or two, but it's coming. <laughs> Hold um, your breath for a week. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, and then we'll start, we'll jump into that hideous strength. So if you want to start reading ahead, uh, one through seven's waiting for you. And that's where we'll be reading as well. Yeah, I'm excited for that hideous strength because we were in kind of philosophy planet this time. And now we're going to come back to Thulcandra and see how it actually plays out in more applicable contexts. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. Thanks. And if you don't want to write a review, instead in the review section. If you just have a favorite line from Paralandra, we would love to hear that. And send us more voice memos. Everybody who sent one, they warm our hearts. We love them, so...